Hello, hey. Matt. How are you? Good. How you doing, buddy? Doing great. Doing great. Are you, are you alive? Did you get some <laughs> sleep last night? So this one's actually been easy. I, our, our first our first kid was was really tough to get to sleep, but our second one, uh, this guy, he'll like he'll put together three four hour stretches, and it's it's fantastic. It's pretty solid, from what I understand. I don't have any human children. I have three rescue pit bull children that also sometimes like to wake up in the middle of the night and <laughs> want to play or go outside or they're sick or something like that. You know, so that's always uh, an adventure to deal with, too. I'll bet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I really think having a baby is, is pretty similar to having a dog or a puppy. I mean, it's just different needs, but the same same idea <laughs> in the end. It's probably harder. I think like. I think maybe one dog is like half a human. So I think we have one and a half children if you break yeah. it down that way. Hey, that's still plenty. <laughs> well, I tell you what, man, I am sitting here in my home office in Medford, New Jersey, and you should have seen the epic fall day oh. that we've had today. I mean, 64 degrees, sunny, low humidity, nice little breeze. I, I bet you miss it a little bit. September and, and early October is the worst time of year in Texas. And really? it, it's just because, you know, in September, at least the first half of the month, there, there's no change. It's August and it's just, you know, continues. Right. Uh, you know, so it's 90, 95 degrees every day and all humid is all you know what. And, you know, sometimes in late September, we get a little bit of a break, usually not that big. This year, we actually got a nice break about four days ago, I want to say. Okay. Where, you know, it was in the 70s in the afternoon. It was sunny, not a cloud in the sky, you know, 60s or 50s in the morning. So it's like, this is great. Like, I love this. But right. I miss fall. I miss fall terribly down here because this is just not the same. It's it's a good season, man. You get that little chill in the air. You, you get the fire pit going in the backyard, you know, have a little little cocktail on the deck, maybe a hot cider, you <laughs> it's, know. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. But. We miss you here in, in New Jersey, but you're a, a Lone Star State guy now, and uh, I'm sure that has its pluses too. And, um, you know, at least it does in sports in the last couple of years, despite despite your Astros minor trash can banging scandal. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a little rough uh, <laughs> the last few months. Um, uh, it, was, it was incredible to watch, you know, it all happen in real time uh, when they were winning and everything. And then, you know, the World Series last year was, uh, it was the most bizarre thing I've ever sat through. But, um, and then everything that happened after was just all a blur. But, you know, the Rockets are consistently good. The Texans are always in the playoffs, but it's like, hey, let's get to the first round and lose our game every year. Yeah, um, yeah, that's their, that's their plan every year. It never changes. <laughs> um, you, say, have you adopted any of these teams more more so than Philly sports or is it more like it's kind of like your second team now because you live there how does that work it's tough to say because like I never grew up a hardcore Eagles fan so like okay. I actually always rooted for the Houston Oilers when I was younger like I had a Warren Moon jersey I mean I was I was all nice. in on the Oilers and I have no <laughs> idea why none whatsoever I never disliked the Eagles I always rooted for them but I was never like a fan so, you know, right. now, you know, my fandom there is pretty, pretty stable. I adopted the Texans, you know, I complain about them more than I root for them, but you know, that's, that's sports. Right. Um, and I think that uh, for the Phillies, I, you know, I still root for them. I still follow them fairly closely. They're still probably my number one in my heart, uh, right. but, I, but I totally adopted the Astros. And the, the crazy part about that was 
you know, when we knew we were moving to Houston, so this was eight years ago, uh, you know, the Astros were terrible, uh, but they were building up their farm system. And, you know, I was reading about it. And this is the only time I've ever read about prospects in the system. Like, I was just reading all these blogs about all these players that are coming up. And like, this team's going to be great. I'm going to buy in on this. They're going to, you know, they're going to win a World Series eventually. And I felt so justified in 2017. And then, you know, when the whole trash can stuff came down. It was like heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I never really like got too fired up about that because, you know, I was a baseball player, as you know, played in high school, played in college a little bit. And it's the nature of that sport. Like you always try to get an edge. You always try to figure out like, you know, whether it's stealing signs or or just what the other team's going to do. And granted, I think what they were doing was definitely it was over the line, but it, it didn't shock me as a baseball fan. I mean, professional baseball players have been trying to cheat since the beginning of profession, professional baseball. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you look at the Black Sox scandal of, what was that, 1919? Right. I think it was. I mean, it, it's it's been around a while. People doing this for, for quite some time. Yeah. It's like I, some of the reactions, I, just from some of the people, I'm just like, well, how are you you're this over the top? I'm sure your team's completely innocent and has never done anything even remotely, you know, toward cheating, right? You know, so you can yeah you can blast off at the, uh, the Astros about things. And, yeah, that was a little, that kind of frustrated me a little bit, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's it's frustrating to to watch, and you know they they obviously took it to the next level, which they shouldn't have. But right. you know, hopefully, hopefully everybody you know learns the difference now, and and you know I'm sure we'll wait for the next team to do something egregious sometime down the line. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, listen, congrats on uh, on baby number two, and I hope uh, you and and the little ones and Denise are doing well. And uh, I, I do appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. I'm sure you're super busy right now with a lot of different things. So um, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so just to formally introduce you here to the audience, uh, this is season one, episode two of the No Code podcast, where I sit down with interesting people in my network and talk about you know how they became successful, what they do for a living, what is their code or their secret sauce in making it all happen and you know matt and i go way back to the high school days um everybody should be honored to be speaking to two-fifths of the mainland class of 2000 <laughs> office um president myself and you were treasurer right yeah i was I yeah was. yeah you were the money man <laughs> handling was, those big fun. dollars yeah it was it was fun i always remember sitting in on some of the meetings and being like we need to jack up the concession stand prices, you know, supply demand. Come on. Well, you did a great job because for our 10 year uh, class reunion 10 years ago, uh, we had a lot of money. We had like $9,000 yeah. and we were all kind of surprised that we had that much. And uh, that was you just putting the screws to the, the high school <laughs> students and making sure that pizza was, you know, three fifty instead of $2. That's right. That's right. No, no, it was, it was, it was absolutely a good team effort. We had a very good, uh, you know, I've, one of the things I've always been kind of I felt blessed by is just that every like, group that I seem to end up in always has like just good quality people um, involved yeah. with it. And, I, and our class was absolutely that. We had so many good people in our class. So it's a testament it's, to them. It's really, yeah, you're right. And it really is key in anything you're doing in business or in life when you have good people around you and you surround yourself with people that, you know, might even be more talented than you in certain ways and complement your skill set and, to me, I always say that, like, I always want to hire people that are smarter than me because at the end of the day, they're going to run and do their thing and be really capable and, 
and I'm going to give them the freedom to do that and they're going to succeed, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So same mantra here. I always, always want to, you know, get people that I think are, could teach me something, you know, I always, I always pray that the person I'm going to interact with, even if they're younger than me, like they could be my manager one day. So right. Always take that. I mean, that's the goal when you hire somebody is not just for the position you're hiring. It's where do you see them growing? And ultimately I've seen some people in the past that maybe don't think about it the right way. And if they see somebody really talented, they're almost afraid of that person. You know, they don't want to hire that person because they want to hire the safe person that's going to stay in the role maybe doesn't have the ability to grow, you know, when I'm hiring, I'm like, well, I want this person to be as good or better than me one day in, in terms of kind of moving up the ladder. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. That's, you know, if you have that attitude, I think you just end up in a good environment and you're, you know, have success in your, in your business, whatever it is. Um, it's, just, it's yeah. a good philosophy to have. So speaking of business, you are a meteorologist. You started in, well, I think most people think about meteorology in essentially in TV, giving weather forecasts. Um, you evolved into something a lot different than that, um, which is to me what makes you really interesting. Um, and actually, the reason I, I reached out to you to see if you do this was I took a trip up to one of our suburban JLL offices the other day and a broker came back from a tour. He had just toured a company, I think probably similar to yours, um, through a space. And he said, yeah, these guys, they, they do weather forecasts for big corporations and energy companies. And it's like, it's super interesting. I'm like, I know a guy that does exactly that. <laughs> so it clicked in my mind. I said, okay, Lance is the guy for podcast number two. I got to get him. So why don't you explain to everybody sort of how your career path went and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. Cause like when I first started out, I never saw myself being where I am today, but I've always kind of viewed my career as kind of like a, a blank slate. Like I'll just go where the, wherever the wave carries me. Um, and I'll ride the wave as long as I can until something else comes up. Uh, so, you know, for most meteorologists, you're either, your goal is probably either kind of threefold. You're either going to go into, into research. So on the grad school, you're going to go into the national weather service, or you're going to try and be on in broadcasting. Um, so, you know, I would say probably that covers about 90 to 95% of meteorology students when they're getting ready to come out of school. And so for me, I wanted okay. to do TV. Um, you know, I had an internship when I was still in, in uh, college, uh, at old TV 40 in South Jersey. And nice. uh, um, the person that was doing weather there, she left midway through my internship and they're like, we don't have anybody to do weather. We're going to throw you on air if you don't mind. And I'm like, uh, sure. So for two weeks, <laughs> if you don't mind yeah. hop on front of the TV and, uh, we didn't train you for this, but go ahead. <laughs> and it was, it was surreal. And, um, for the last two weeks of the internship, I was doing the weather, at, you know, six and 11 in, in South Jersey. And it was, it was crazy. Um, but I think that's sort of like solidified, like, yeah, I want to go into broadcasting. So, you know, that was right. It was in between right. my junior and senior year. Uh, so I graduated from Rutgers in, in Oh four and I looked for TV jobs and, uh, the first one that I got was a part-time offer, and it was in Syracuse, New York, uh, doing basically weather producing. So you're working off-air, building graphics, and helping them out with forecasts and stuff. They had a team of uh, either four, I'm afraid it was four or five. I think it was five meteorologists, and um, you know they were all full-time, and you know just basically helping them out 20 hours a week. Um, and basically, you're just trying to get your foot in the door at that point. So it was right. it was one of those things. that's like, yeah, sure, you know, Syracuse is not too far away, but it's far enough away that I can kind of you know build my own 
self out a little bit and, and moved up there and worked 20 hours a week and then took a part-time job at Barnes and Noble to work another 20 hours. Um, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Remember that when that was a place? Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it was just like, the, and the crazy thing was it was like right across from the TV station. So I didn't have to go very far. Um, but that was a pain in the neck, uh, trying to do that, which, you know, it gives me a lot of appreciation for people that have to juggle multiple jobs. Um, of course, uh, but it was, it was a great experience. Um, I got thrown on air, uh, over the course of a couple of weekends when it just happened that everybody was out and, uh, they, they let me go on and I got trained up for it. It was great. Uh, it went pretty well, but I was very, um, you know, I knew I couldn't stay there forever. So I, I made a tape and I got, uh, uh, a, a resume made out of it and uh, sent it down the road to Utica, New York, which is about uh, 40 miles east of Syracuse. And they had a full-time sure. opening for a weekend meteorologist. And this is like market 170 out of, I forget how many markets are like 240. So this is like small market television. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I figured weekends full-time, this is you know, perfect for someone like me that's just trying to start out. And they ended up hiring me. Um, and so I worked there for four and a half years. Um, eventually I sort of, I wasn't the chief meteorologist, but I ended up basically leading the other meteorologists because our chief meteorologist had some health issues and had a, a, a child uh, at that time. And she was great to learn from. And it was just kind of shocking to kind of be thrown, like losing that, that um, mentorship that you got. So it was, it was, it was right. an interesting experience doing that. But um, I mean, four and a half years working in a place that gets, you know, anywhere from a hundred to 150 inches of snow in a winter um, was great for someone that loves, <laughs> my gosh, someone that loves the weather. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, there was just something about it, you know, and you're there for a long enough time. You're like, all right, it's time to start to look for the next thing. And, you know, I was getting a little frustrated and impatient that nothing was really biting. And I had a friend right. at the time right. that was working in the energy industry and he was working in Baltimore. And um, I went down and visited him and saw what he did. And I was like, wow, this is actually really cool. I kind of like this. So I started applying mm -hmm. for energy jobs and spent a year and a half uh, getting interviews and getting rejected and, uh, eventually getting hired uh, to work for Southern California Edison, uh, which is based outside of Los Angeles in California. And um, basically I was there to forecast uh, temperatures for a couple of key cities in SoCal. And basically they take those temperatures and input them into what they call a load forecasting model. And that model okay. uh, determines how much energy use they're going to uh, need for that day. Uh, based on those temperatures, these they've got they had uh, people on staff that were actually modelers that they built this out themselves and had the weather variable put in. And the the interesting thing is that what a lot of people don't fully understand, but probably do, is that you know, weather directly impacts energy consumption, and it's actually a really almost really neat and tidy relationship. That if if a certain region is at a certain temperature, uh, you're going to have X amount of energy needed for that period. Um, right. And so, you know, you build up all these relationships, obviously the, the hard part is getting the forecast, right. Um, which is, you know, challenging in the East and, you know, being from the East and having to forecast in the West is a crazy transition. Um, because there's, I'm sure it I, is. I mean, you know how South Jersey, there's nothing, right. It's all flat and, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, there's, yep. you know, there's really no terrain or anything. And so you've got deserts, mountains, and you've got the ocean. So you've got the Marine layer and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, the difference of five or six degrees off on your temperature forecast can mean literally thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to your company, um, if not more. Wow. Now, is it just is it just temperature forecasting or is there other things that 
play into it, like wind or, or precipitation or, you know, what's, what's the big tie in there? Is it So at that point in time, it was temperature. So this was 2009. I was there. Um, it was mostly temperature, okay. a little bit of wind because um, some of our power is generated by, by wind turbines at that time. And now it's substantially okay. more. Um, so wind is much more important now than it used to be. And it's less, less for the demand than the supply. Um, you're trying to determine how much wind power you're going to be able to generate during the course of a, of a day. And that can be, you know, pretty tricky in and of itself. Um, but okay. there's all kinds of variables that go into it. Cloud cover can matter. Um, you know, 90 degrees with clouds is not the same as 90 degrees with full sunshine uh, in terms of how it heats right. building up. Um, you know, it, humidity matters as well. What's, what's the, you know, the real field temperature, whatever, you know, heat index, whatever uh, term you want to use to call that. Um, you know, that, okay. that's important too. Uh, you know, so it's just all these like little things that, that can kind of add up, but the ultimate, you know, 75 to 85% of what you're doing is, is temperature driven entirely. So it's a lot of, a lot of temperature forecasting, um, that becomes the big thing. Okay. And, uh, you know, working in LA with the, where the Marine layer is some days, the Marine layer, Marine layer will burn off. Now the Marine layer is just low clouds and fog that form on the coast because the water, the Pacific Ocean okay. is so cool. It just generates these, these low clouds. You're right at the coast every day. Mm -hmm. If you have Santa Ana winds or offshore winds, sometimes that'll just you know blow the marine layer out into the ocean, and then you're, you know you're 100 degrees in LA rather than you know 85 and and, and partly cloudy. So you know days like right. that are really really tough because you can you could easily bust a forecast by 15 degrees you know from from one day wow. before. Um, yeah, it's not it's not fun. That that's got to be a lot of pressure too when you're talking about like you said, tens of thousands of dollars or, or maybe more in some instances to the traders and well, to the company, that's gotta be, um, that's gotta be difficult. If you, you know, you're off on one of those going back and explaining, Hey, my bad. I was, <laughs> I was 15 degrees off on that one. You know, Hey, it happens. Did you run into that at all? And was that sort of, it must've been somewhat of a learning curve going from, you know, TV forecasting in, in an area that, you know, even though Utica and, and upstate New York, I'm sure there's obviously a lot of variability with lake effects and, and things like that, but going out to California, adapting to that new climate and also just a brand new approach to meteorology. Yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a learning curve. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, forecasting lake effect snow in upstate New York, which was, that was an entirely other monster. If I had stayed in upstate New York, that would have kind of become sort of the thing that I would worship was forecasting lake effect and trying to figure that out. It's very difficult to do because, you know, wind direction just right. it's off by a little bit means a whole lot of, you know, more snow for different people than you expect. Um, but mm -hmm. learning from that helped me adapt to learning about the marine layer, which, you know, is another sort of what we call it. This is what we call mesoscale things. They're very small scale features that are tough for weather models to pick up on. And uh, you've got to do a lot of meteorology to kind of understand, you know, exactly what's going to happen there. And um, it okay. was, it was definitely challenging. Now the communication of it was actually very easy. And in fact, doing um, mm -hmm. TV weather really helped a lot with the transition because you're, you know, when you're doing TV weather, you're just communicating a weather forecast to a certain audience and you're speaking in their language. When you're doing it on a trade floor, right. it's the same thing. You're just speaking in their language. You just have to learn that language a little bit better. And that takes a little bit of time, but it's okay. not really that hard ultimately. Um, you know, once you figure it out, it becomes pretty easy to talk about. Instead of saying it's going to be hot or cold, you can say, hey, this is a bullish pattern or a bearish pattern or whatever. Um, and, you know, then everybody understands what you mean. Uh, so you can. So, yeah. the, sorry, not to cut you off, but the, the traders, um, 
you know, what's, what's their mindset. And, and what I'm kind of thinking about is, you know, in my business, the commercial real estate business, we have brokers and they're the salespeople. They're going out there doing real estate deals. And then they have support groups like research and marketing and operations. Are those traders, you know, it, kind of what I'm thinking in my mind is really kind of type A sales driven people um, that are relying on you as like the researcher and the data driven person as the expert to, you know, kind of influence the moves they make? And if so, is there any, you know, kind of clash there from time to time? It's interesting because I've, I've met both types. I've met that, that type A. I've worked with that type A before. And then I've worked with people that are just totally awesome and completely understanding. And if you're wrong, they get it. And basically the way I viewed it is that, you know, these, these people are looking at so much stuff during the course of the day to try and make a decision on to whether to buy or sell at a certain level um, how much they want to do and all right. that. Um, and, it, and it's always a moving target, you know, because everything is changing during the course of the day. The forecast might change. The amount of, of load or, or energy use is going to change. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with that. And what I found is that, you know, what they appreciate most is honesty and they appreciate when you, know, you have to make a call, right? You've ultimately got to make a call as a forecaster. What is it going to do? And they want to know what that is, but then right. they also want to know what is, what is the bands on that? You know, what are the bands on that? Is it going to be, what is the risk that it could be five degrees hotter or five degrees cooler or whatever? Um, you know, they're interested in that kind of right. understanding too, um, you know, because that helps them to, to, you know, make a decision. We always talk about in meteorology, we talk about deterministic forecasting, which is, you know, it's going to be X at two o'clock. Um, or the probable issue sure. forecasting, which is, you know, basically think of your, uh, you know, when you look at a hurricane forecast, the, the cone, right? So you're looking at more of that. And there's been definitely a move in the last five to 10 years more toward the probabilistic side, uh, because we were able to quantify mm -hmm. some of this probability a little bit better now than maybe we used to. And we, we learned that deterministic outcomes are just, they're too, you say them too confidently and too certainly. And we know that there's going to be, you know, differences there and there's going to be times where we're just completely wrong uh you know so right. from, from a trader standpoint they don't necessarily always want a probabilistic answer but it helps them a little bit to understand um i've fortunately never really had any instances where i've clashed pretty hard with anyone that i've worked with but i know people that have right. i absolutely know people that have okay um, you know i don't know if it's just a function of the people that i work with or how i go about things because i try and do it you know i I don't try and hide anything. You know, I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you what I know when I right. know it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. All right. That's, I accept that reality. Uh, it's, it's, it's sure. And you're exactly. going to be wrong sometimes. Nobody gets it right. Exactly. I, mean, I, I forecasted last winter to be pretty cold and it was definitely not cold. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I've had my fair share of busts and, um, you know, it just comes with the territory, but, um, yes, it's, it, it's interesting. I think in, in, uh, you know, sales cultures or, or client facing cultures these days where, you know, the, the support teams and the research and the predictive analytics are so important to the people out front that are making the deals and making the decisions that it sort of almost blends into one thing, you know, where it, at least in our industry, in the real estate industry, there used to be a pretty distinct difference between a researcher mm -hmm. and a broker. You know, the broker was the guy at the country club shaking hands building relationships, making deals. And the researcher was, you know, at the office, head down at their cube, right. writing a white paper. And now, you know, we have our researchers in the room in the pitch to the prospect or the client meeting, 
giving, you know, real time, very detailed analytics and, and forecasts on where our market's going to go, you know, where are rents going to go in the next five years, where are, you know, what are building owners doing with TI allowances for people coming into new space? And it's no longer a behind the scenes thing. It's, it's right out there. And I, I think you see it in a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. You see it in sports now with analytics departments in, in baseball or football making, you know, right alongside the general manager making, essentially making yeah. personnel moves. It, it's it's incredible. Know? I mean, we just have, there's so much data um, that is out there now that's accessible that, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense to just kind of put those people off to the side. Right. And in, in meteorology, right. the interesting thing has been that, you know, you used to have to go to government sites to get, you know, a weather model for output, um, you know, at any point, this was up till about uh, 2005 or so. And then all of a sudden you had this proliferation in the last 15 years of all these different websites that have all this different model output. There's new models that are being run um, and they're all being put there. So now you've got a million things to look at during the course of the day. And it's constantly, it's just a constant stream of information. Every three to six hours, you're just getting bombarded with more stuff. Um, and, you know, your whole thesis might change a little bit in that time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's important to, you, one of the interesting things that I found about this is that, you know, you have, you go to work, but you know, you, your work never stops. Like you're always looking at stuff. And right. Part of it is, is your, you know, is at least as a meteorologist, like you're passionate about that stuff and you're interested and you genuinely want to figure it out. But the other part is, you know, you want to be on top of it for, for your, your, your company, your employees and, and your coworkers. Right. Right. And then, you know, I imagine you're, you're building models off of models and using kind of data on top of data to, to try to, you know, build something that's even more accurate or just tell the story of what's going on. And, and you mentioned that communication piece before. I'd imagine that's super key because at the end of the day, I, I think not, not to speak for you and your business, but most people have access yes. to the data. Yep. Like it's out there. The question is, how do you best synthesize it and summarize it and present it to make Exactly. And, and that's, you know, when I talk to students now, I tell them you first and foremost, if you want to get into anything operationally focused, you need to learn how to talk to people and you need to learn how to not talk to people as a scientist. You need to learn to talk to people in meet them where they are, what their language is. And that's right. It's, it seems so simple, but it is so hard for people to do. Um, and, and, you know, it's so, it, it, it really, you, you have to just find the right person for the right role in that situation. Sometimes it's really hard. Right. Um, you know, I, one of the things that, you know, I've learned in the last gosh, three or four years with, with a couple of the hurricanes that we've dealt with down here is just how important and how critical that is. You have to be able to, to ex- explain everything, um, both in both ways, both in detail and also briefly, you know, if you're talking to uh, your executive right. team at work and, you know, they don't have time to be going, they're making decisions. They don't have time to listen to a whole treatise on why a storm is going to do something. What, what is it going to mean? What is it going to do? What, is sure. it, what does it mean? What are the odds that it does something else? Um, but at the same time, you're talking to other people internally and you're trying to give them a more methodical um, explanation as to why a storm is doing what it's doing. So, you know, you have to be able to, to be very flexible in how you communicate and um, you just got to be good at sure. it. And it's, it's that simple. Right. And, and you're right, you do have to adapt to your audience too. I know when I started in, 
you know, in the commercial real estate business, I was coming over from more just kind of strictly finance accounting. And I was moving into a role where I was working with brokers and I was working on transactions and deals. And in the finance and accounting days, I used to be, you had to be very detailed. So I'd send out a report and I, I might write five paragraphs on it and they were pretty long paragraphs, you know? And I did that a couple of times with my boss who was, who was more of a broker type. And he was like, dude, I'm not even going to read that. <laughs> it's like, you got to write it in like four sentences right, or, or less, you know? And at first I was like, who is this buffoon? You know, like I've written the masterpiece here. What's his problem. But then you realize once you start doing kind of what he's doing, he's working on 25 deals at once. You know, he doesn't have time for what yeah. I just did. You know, I've got to pare it down so I can give him the highlights and then maybe say, call me if you want, need to know more about it. You know, if, if you need it's, to know the story. Exactly. That's exactly how it is. You know, what, what I'll do in the morning is I'll send out, you know, an email. Here's what's changed overnight. And it's littered with, with pictures. Like I threw a lot of maps in there and I, you know, just kind of jot a couple of things. <laughs> You know, but I always preface it with, if you don't read this email at all, here are the three key bullet points that you need to know. And then if you want more details, you go right ahead yeah. and read through it. Um, and that, that's just what I've learned. It, it, like you said, it, it works. Everybody's very busy and everybody's got a million different things to do. And you just got to, you got to be flexible with them and understand that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and speaking about a million things to do, uh, not to skip over some of your other stuff along your career, but you at some point started getting into more of the social media and blogging and, and you created this website called space city weather outlets in, you know, looking to you for your opinion. Um, how did that sort of come about? So there's, it's kind of funny. So when I worked in TV in, in Utica, New York, we, we started a weather blog. So this was back when weather, when blogs were kind of the new thing. And like, you know, everybody started publishing a blog. Right. And we were, we were talking about doing this for a while. And we finally did it. And I loved it. Like, I thought it was great. Like, this is great. Like, I can talk on air about whatever I need to. And then if I want to go into detail about things, I can just use the blog sort of as the, hey, here's, you know, a little bit more behind the scenes type stuff. So I really enjoyed doing that. So when I left TV. There was part of me that missed that a lot. And, and I really like, um, I, I like the public facing communication aspect of things. Yeah. And so I couldn't really do too much of that when I was in California. Uh, when, I, when I came back um, into, to, toward the, uh, into, into Houston, um, you know, I couldn't do too much either because I was working uh, at an investment bank at the time. And you're kind of, you're kind of muzzled when you, when you work for companies like sure. that. Uh, you, you know, there's only so much public-facing stuff you can do. But um, when I ended up in my, my current position, it was actually kind of funny and it's sort of fortuitous that, you know, you don't like to talk about things like this for, as being fortuitous, but I'd gotten laid off from the bank. Okay. And this was the winter of 2013, 2014. It was the winter that was, you know, everybody referred to as the polar vortex. Oh yeah. I remember super, that. Super cold. Right. Um, and it was just, it was killing me that I had gotten laid off that year because I was like on top of a lot of calls and I was like, man, I would have killed it this year. Right. Um, but, you know, so I had some time to sort of think about, you know, what I wanted to do. And I, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't know how long it was going to take me to find another job. Um, so what I did was I, I did started, I had a Twitter account, but I never really used it. And I started posting stuff on Twitter that was more, you know, focused on energy type insights. And then eventually sort of, you know, organically built up, you know, some other meteorologists and whatnot that were following me. And I started talking more about, you know, Houston weather type insights. Okay. 
and um, hit a point where um, I could, uh, there was, I still had not been hired yet, but it was close, but they were also accepting freelance writing positions at 538. Okay. On Nate Silver's website. I love that site. And yeah, it's, it's a great fantastic. site. It's super fun. It's super nerdy, right? It's all, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, and they, they wanted some freelance writers when they were going to kick off their site. And one of the topics they were interested in was weather. So I was like, okay, well, um, here, let me send you a couple of writing samples from my past. And, you know, the, the editor at the time uh, gave me a call and was, was interested and uh, said, hey, write a piece about this winter, the polar vortex winter. Why has it been so crazy? Um, so I wrote a piece about that and they published it on the first day of the site, which was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and in that time, I'd also gotten hired at where I'm at now, Shinure Energy. And, you mm -hmm. know, I talked to them and I was like, you know, I've been doing a little bit of this freelance writing. Is that okay? If that continues, it's never going to go into anything that we would be dealing with, but it's just more interest of weather. And, you know, everybody signed off on it, which is great. You know, it's, it's wonderful to work for a place that allows you to do that. Um, and then the science writer at the Houston Chronicle, this was probably a, a year or two later, uh, maybe about a year later, um, he was, he, he wrote about weather every week. And he's also got a background that's in both in astronomy and meteorology. And he wanted some help um, writing posts on Fridays. And through a mutual friend, he got in touch with me and asked if I was interested. I was like, sure, I'll do it. And I did Friday forecast when he was at the Chronicle. And then he left the Houston Chronicle and now writes uh, space for Ars Technica. Well, when he left the Houston Chronicle, he had this whole audience of people that was following him for weather. And he's like, hey, do you want to start a blog? Well, you know, I was thinking you'd call it like Space City Weather. And right. we would just kind of have this blog and it would, you know, just continue. It would just be like what we did at the paper, but on our own. We're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's, you know, let's do it. And we did it. And, you know, for a couple of years, it was, you know, a little niche thing that people were interested in. Right. Um, I think he probably had about, I don't know, 75,000 Facebook followers at that point. Okay. And um, then Hurricane Harvey hit and it just exploded. And it was, it's, it's not been the same since. Yeah, I, I would imagine out of necessity just because that was such an unbelievable monster of a storm um and i remember that one well not just from hearing it in the news but i had mistakenly wound up on an invite um from jll for a national preparedness team i don't know why i was on there i had no business being on there <laughs> i think it was because my first go around at jll i worked on a global account and we probably had some on that account I had some properties in that area and I guess they probably had my name from like an old email list or something. And at first I thought I was supposed to be there. So I'm like, Oh yeah, I, be I better join this. And then I realized after the first or second call, like, Oh, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm going to keep going because sure. as horrible as this is, it's also super interesting to me in what our company is doing. And, and this was from a property management perspective because we had mm -hmm. so many buildings that we managed in that area and, and owner clients that we had to make sure we're, ready for this and could also react to the disaster that it was and it was just i mean it was it was dumbfounding it just kind of broke your brain to think about the amount of rain that fell in that time the flooding um i don't remember much about the wind damage but i know that the moisture was probably the biggest problem right yeah yeah it um so the, most of the wind damage was confined to like sort of a smaller area um down near corpus christi uh mm -hmm. port aransas rockport texas these are really nice communities but they got they got hit pretty hard um from the wind and the surge but it just the problem was it just stalled out and <clears throat> it was uh, that that whole week was surreal because it was the, the week leading up to that was the the solar eclipse the big solar eclipse that we had so i remember going out for that and i always now when i see pictures of that it kind of brings back 
you know, almost like PTSD feelings, sure. um, yeah. what you were about to go through. And I just remember watching weather models that week spitting out over the course of, you know, five or six days, 40, 50 inches of rain. And I'd never seen that before from any, anywhere in the U S and right. I was kind of like, is this really believable? Like, I don't know that this, could, this is really could uh, How, how does this happen? Right. Right. Um, so, you know, at least in the initial days, I had a hard time believing that it was, it was something that could, that could happen. Um, right. And eventually you're just kind of like, well, we got to go with that. Cause that's what the data says. And uh, you know, it, the, the hardest part with that was figuring out where that bullseye was going to be. Was it going to be over Houston? Was it going to be hundred miles West, hundred miles East? And as it turns out, it was, it was over Houston and points East. And um, right. it was, it was, it was just a, it was a nightmare, just a nightmare storm to, to, to deal with. I mean, from a, from a communication standpoint, it was pretty easy. It was just like, this is going to suck. Um, <laughs> be, Think like, of the worst thing you've ever experienced and just <laughs> multiply it by 10. And that's what we're going to have. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. the, the briefings for that one were, were really easy to do. Um, but I mean, there were times where it was you know, it made you physically ill just kind of going through it. And I was just going to say there, there must have been an emotionally, you know, draining component to all that being the guy that had to, number one, see and, and deal with the data and then go and communicate that. That's not a that's not a message that anybody wants to send, you know. No, no, you know, you, you always say don't don't shoot the messenger, and it's like you're the messenger with like the worst possible news you can have. Right. Um, I think one of the things we've done well, like with our blog at least, and even what I try and do at work too, is you know we take this no hype mantra, right? So we're not going to mm -hmm. get all worked up over a little rainstorm. We're not going right. to get all worked up over stuff that doesn't really matter that much. Right. Um, so like when we start to get worked up, we want you to pay attention. And right. that's kind of the, the mantra that we took. And that's really what worked for us. Well, I think during Harvey was that we were, you know, deathly serious and, you know, at times felt like we were kind of you know, going into hyperbole, but I mean, that was, that was the forecast was hyperbole. Um, right. And uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what, what worked out pretty well for us. I think, um, you know, during the storm, I had gotten, you know, texts from some people that were close to flooding and, and uh, my brother-in-law, his house flooded. And, you know, when you see that, it's just, you know, it just adds a whole other dimension to the, to the, to what you're trying to do. And you bear um, a lot of responsibility there too, because people are coming to you for that information and they're basically saying, Hey, Matt, what, what do I do? You know, what's yeah. going to happen here? And, and I've even seen it like on your social media when stuff is happening back home in South Jersey, whether it's a, you know, a big storm coming through or, you know, snow or, or whatever. And there's a lot of demands on your, time and and your information that you can provide how do you kind of balance that with you've got a full-time job you've got a wife and a couple kids you've got a, a social media <laughs> platform and a, and the blog and, and space city weather how do you how do you kind of make room for everything or or is that something that you just have to kind of evolve and learn and grow and, and figure out as you go I, I think it's the latter. I really do think you have to just kind of work with it and, and see what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'll do, and, you know, I feel bad doing it sometimes, but, you know, during storms like, like Harvey or Hurricane Laura recently, you know, getting a lot of questions in social media from people, and I, I just can't answer all of them. I can't really get right. to them at the time. So what I do is I just try and post, like, I always try and think ahead of like, all right, what are people going to ask me? What do they want to know? And I try and cut them off, you know, ahead of time and answer those questions before they can be asked. 
Right. Um, that's been the one thing that I've learned from both Harvey and, and recently Laura is just the, the more you can get out in front of what people want to know, the easier it's going to be for everyone. Um, right. You know, now you're never going to answer everybody's questions. It's just not realistic. So, you know, you just kind of have to accept that. And I think most people are accepting that you, you have a life and a job and, and, you know, you have to, you're not going to be able to do all that on the social media side. My obligation is obviously first and foremost to, to my, my employer. So sure. I'm going to make sure that they get everything from me that they need. Uh, right before anybody else does yeah um, but uh you know there's times where it's hard and, and the the guy that i work with on the site uh for space city weather he's he's phenomenal and um he's been a great leader for it and it's been um you know he's he's done a lot um to, to kind right. of keep things going he understands when i have to bail because i have to deal with work stuff um it's you know, interesting uh to see you know, I, I feel like companies today more and more are becoming flexible in terms that they understand that people do stuff outside of their regular nine to five. And I feel like when I started my career, 2004 ish, it was really frowned upon to do anything like outside of your, your standard role in your company. And I feel like now it, maybe it's like the excess capacity uber age of where we're at in technology and business but it's sort of like accepted now if you do stuff outside of your day-to-day -day, as long as it doesn't interfere with your work product yeah do you feel yeah. that too yeah i do i think that it's 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 definitely especially if you're doing something positive right and um one of the the the, the selling points that i think has been at least for us in our case is that like we've kind of become almost a community resource now um for a number of people and um, the fact that, Hey, you know, they, they realize, wait a minute, this actually looks pretty good that we're employing somebody that's really helpful to the community. Um, right. you know, so they, they view it in that prism, I think more than anything, you know, as long as you're not doing anything that's going to, you know, interfere with, with, you know, work or give away trade secrets or anything like that. Um, you know, they, they, they don't really mind that much, you know, just, just do your work, get it done. And, you know, when you're, when you're out there doing your thing on your own, it, you know, if it's positive, great, good for you. Yeah. Build your personal uh, it's been, brand it's and, and build your personal brand. And I assume it can build the company brand too. If you're identified with that other thing outside of it, that is, is making people in the community happy of, of the customers they serve. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. And it's, I get teased at work all the time about, <laughs> about it. Um, and it's, it's just, it's pretty funny, but everybody, you know, they're all very supportive, um, which is, which is great. And, you know, it sometimes it's kind of weird. Cause like sometimes like even my, my direct ball, we did internally <laughs> for work. I'm just like, right. Hey, right. Is, is this how it goes? Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, it's been phenomenal. I'm, I'm extremely fortunate in that regard, but I, like you said, I think it, it, I think companies realize that now it's, it's good for, it's good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It, it keeps things fresh for the employee. It's potentially good for the employer. And at the end of the day, you know, like you said, as long as you're not in conflict and, and you're, you know, creating something positive out in the world, it's, it's, it's great to have that opportunity to do it. And, you know, my first podcast guest, um, Matt Blank, same thing. We talked about it last week where, you know, he's developed this networking and, and coaching platform and, you know, he was sort of doing it on the side and then he actually brought it into his company that is pretty much strictly finance and accounting and audit and tax. And they brought in this new, basically like sales training platform because they liked what he was doing so much. And to me, that ability to be creative and, you know, be a human being outside of what you're asked to do in your nine to five is ext extremely fulfilling. 
it really it really is it really is it's it's a it's a wonderful feeling to be able to do things like that and it, it's everything now is like kind of multidisciplinary now you know it's like right. you, you can you can bring things that you never thought were related to what your you know job is into into that and find a use for it and it's just it's really valuable to kind of understand a whole bunch of different things and, and be able to see how they can pair up with what you do on a day-to-day basis and you know maybe find you know, some way to, to incorporate something new like that, uh, which is, is phenomenal. Right. And you've, you know, you've really built uh, a, a pretty big following out there in, in the world. I, I just, before we jumped on the call, I was like, I know Lens has got a lot of Twitter followers. How many <laughs> does he have? I think it's like, like 30,000. Like that's, that's pretty awesome right there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm always kind of amused by it. You know, it's like, I, why are this many people interested in what I have to say? Um, and it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook and all that, I mean, they can be a cesspool, but like if you find the right niche and you find the right, um, the right topic to talk about, um, it can be, it can be good. And I've had, I've had a mostly positive experience with, with Twitter. I mean, you're always going to get the, the, the people in there that are annoying and bots and all that good stuff. Right. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, you've got people that are interested in weather. Everybody, everybody likes weather, right? It's always the topic of conversation. Sure. Everybody's interested in it. And what, what's kind of fascinating, one of the things I've learned is that people, people shop around and they go like, all right, like it would be like what we would do as kids, you know, like, okay, well, let's see what channel three says, how much snow we're going to get, how much snow is channel six day we're going to get. Um, yeah. You know, I always wanted exactly. the bigger number. I would just go to that source and be like, they're right. Eight to twelve inches, not the three to five that exactly. the other one said. That's exactly <laughs> exactly what you want. And yeah. people do that. Yeah. I mean, they still do that. And like sometimes I'll get like somebody will reply to some other meteorologist post and tag me in it and want my opinion, which I hate. Like I'm like I don't want to go pit myself up against oh. someone else. Yeah. Uh, but right. But it's right. Just, it's it's very humorous how much uh, people really like it. But it's been it's been good, and it's you know it's not like not like I'm forcing it. I just kind of, it's happened all organically, which makes it even cooler. Um, you know, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. That's, that's it's really a humbling responsibility. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and speaking of, you know, the Twitter world and people talking about weather, it's, it's impossible to ignore right now with the wildfires going on in California and, and Oregon and Washington. It's just, it's just unbelievable. I'm sure we could do a couple hours on, on climate change, but we're, we're rounding out the time uh, in, in the next 10 minutes or so. But what's your, I mean, high level, what's your thought on what's going on right now? And, and as a meteorologist who actually knows what he's talking about in this field, like what's your, what's your level of concern and, and what are we going to do I, about it's this? It's been interesting. My own, my own personal views have evolved rather considerably over the last 15 years or so, you know, whereas when I came out of school, I I don't want to say I was super skeptical of, of everything, but I was like, you know, just thinking of it from, from a modeling standpoint, you know, I deal with weather models and I look at weather models. I'm like, okay, I can't even get 15 days, right. You know, how can I do, you know, a hundred years in the future, but as time has gone on, Mm -hmm. I've learned more about how things are done and, and it's a totally different process by which, you know, some of these climate models are run and it's a completely different way of looking at things. And, for the most part, they do a, you know, they're doing a pretty decent job, uh, you know, at least in the last 10 to 15 years or so with, you know, where we've been going. And I have become uh, probably in the last five or six years, a lot more hawkish on, you know, what's happening and how, how serious it right. is and, and what it could mean. And, 
you know, the problem is, is that it's such a complex issue and things like things like the wildfires in the West, it's not singularly um, not not singularly caused by climate change. That's part of of a multiple multiple reasons for that you know it is you know there's always the right. joke that some people come out and say like oh well, you know the forests are the problem and that is actually part of the problem out there um there's invasive invasive species right. that have moved in beetles and things like that the beetles I mean, yeah, yeah but that in and of itself could be probably tied back to, to to climate change to some extent too um you know but but climate change is always there and you know this is not gonna this is a problem that's not going to get better um particularly with respect right. to wildfires. I mean, the wildfire situation in the West is, is complicated further by the fact that there's a lot of people living in places that maybe they shouldn't be living. Um, you know, we've sure. encroached on spaces that, that used to be open. And, but, but we've never had, you know, at least in recent years, we've never had anything like what we've seen in the last couple of years out there. So it, it's alarming. It's very alarming. Right. It's very concerning. Um, and where it goes, I, I don't know. Um, you know, we live in a place you know, here in Houston where we've had multiple, you know, floods that are, you know, the 100 or 500 year, um, you know, return period. And it's just in the last few years. And it seems like every time it rains here, we have, we have a flood. I would jokingly say like, oh, it's time for our annual 100 year flood. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm not right. even really kidding. Um, cause, cause that's what it feels like. Yeah. So you know, it, it, there's been research that's been done down here that for whatever reason, this particular area has had a significant uptick in, in heavier rainfall um, than other parts of Texas. But, you know, it, it's just it's just a trend toward more extremes. You're just going to see more and more of these extremes. And, um, you know, it's right. not going to stop snowing. It's, you know, it's not something that's going to just smack you in the face like that. It's going to be all this subtle stuff. It's sea level rise, you know, in South sure. Jersey, sure. You know, you're dealing with, um, you know, both land subsidence and sea level rise, which is causing more, you know, what we call blue sky coastal flooding days where there's no storm. It's just higher sure. tides and parts of, you know, Atlantic city flood, um, you know, and, and these are right. things we're going to have to deal with in, in the future. And, you know, even, even if we acted right now and did everything that we were supposed to do, we would still have to deal with some of this stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see this getting any yeah. better. Um, and it's going to be, I think, yeah, I think, it's from what I know about it at this point, it's more about mitigation and, and making the long-term plans to make sure, you know, we've hit a certain, potentially hit a certain tipping point. Let's yeah. not hit the next one because God forbid what the next one is, you know, and then maybe over time the planet sort of heals itself. Cause I think if you do the right things, maybe over the next, you know, 30, 50 years, maybe there could be some level of, of a natural global cycle of, of, of healing because you stopped putting so much CO2 into the atmosphere, you know, you, you cleaned up water, you cleaned up, uh, you know, emissions and, and, and I'm starting, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm starting to think that, you know, maybe it's more of a, uh, a corporate directive uh, with some big companies kind of taking lead on this kind of stuff versus, you know, waiting for government to, yeah. get their act together. Yeah, and I think we've seen a lot of that in the last three or four years where there's been a lot of companies that have started to step up. And, you know, it's, a, it's unfortunate that it has to come to right. that, but, um, you know, good good on them for, you know, putting that that good foot forward and, and recognizing, um, you know, that that uh, being a good environmental steward is, is, is good business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think that's a, a big key is, is, you know, when it becomes the right business case to do it, 
then you're going to see markets sort of come in and, and jump all over it with a degree of this right. is the right thing to do, you know? And then at that point, it sort of becomes undeniable and unstoppable that, that companies are doing the right thing. I, from my perspective, I just worry like how long does that take and in how many industries does it have to happen? Probably yeah, almost everything. Yeah, it, gets, it gets real dicey so. in that scenario. But, you know, I, I, I remain hopeful, you know, we'll, we'll do the right thing eventually. And, you know, like, like you said, it, it's going to be, it's going to be market, market driven stuff. I mean, if you look at, just, just look at coal versus right. gas versus wind versus solar. I mean, you've seen this transition where coal is just not, it's not really viable as a, as an energy resource anymore. Um, right. So we're pivoting more right. to gas and, and wind and solar. And, um, you know, that that's going to continue to evolve as time goes on. So eventually we're going to get there and just by just by market driven forces taking us there. Um, so it'll get better, but it's right. going to be a little rough, I think, for a while. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your take on that. And it's certainly, <clears throat> I think, acknowledging the problem and taking a rational you know, approach at, at how you solve it is where the conversation should go because right now it seems like too much of, you know, both sides just screaming at each other and, you know, one side saying it's not even real and we don't need to do anything about it. And the other side basically saying we should end all industries now and, you know, force companies into certain technologies. And, and to me, that's, I mean, there's a million other problems that come with doing it that yeah, way. Yeah, it's it's, you know? it's a big, big challenge, and that's why you know we need to get get people at the table that are want to make constructive decisions and, and solve the problem rather than just bickering about it. I mean, Lanza Juliano, 2024 seems like the only the only way to go about it. You know, we got to get on that ticket, the independent <laughs> ticket. You know, you can bring some common sense back into this world. I mean, we did it with the class of 2000. There's no reason why we you can't know, make we a comeback. You know, always considered to be like the future, right? It was always like the class of 2000 is the one that's going to save the <laughs> yeah. world. So I guess we'll just have to do it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place for us to uh, to wrap this up now that we've sort of set this directive and you know, maybe we can come back in, in a year or two and do this pod again and, and we'll have, you know, our fundraising in order and, you know, a coalition behind us. But uh, but until then, buddy, I, I really, really appreciate the time. Your career is super interesting. Your family's growing. You got a lot of great stuff going on right now and super thankful that you took the yeah, time no, to chat with me and, today. And, uh, you know, always happy to talk to you and, and uh, good luck with the, the podcast. I hope it hope it takes off for you. Hey man, first one went okay. You know, it's just a matter of time before I get into that Rogan territory and can start uh, start hawking some yeah. some products on the podcast here. Make some money at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, have a great weekend, and uh, I'll Sounds catch good, up with you soon. Good. All the best, the Matt Lands. Everybody, take care. Have a good day.